Hey, Unchained listeners. As you know, it's hard keeping up with the fast-paced world of crypto, so we've got just the thing for you. Subscribe to our free Unchained daily newsletter at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. You'll get the latest crypto news and original articles from our reporters, as well as summaries of other happenings and bullet points, plus our meme of the day, all curated and written by our amazing team. It's still your no-hype resource for all things crypto, just in newsletter form. Sign up at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Again, the URL is unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Unconfirmed, the podcast that reveals how the marquee names in crypto are reacting to the week's top headlines and gets the inside scoop on what they see on the horizon. I'm your host, Laura Shin. This episode is brought to you by OnRamp. Your branding and website are the first things your users will see. And in the current wild west of ICOs and blockchain startups, you need to stand out from the pack. OnRamp is a full-service creative and design agency that will help amplify your brand with the perfect website, logo, collateral, or custom design project. Get big results in no time by visiting thinkonramp.com. This episode is brought to you by QuantStamp. QuantStamp is building the first smart contract security auditing protocol designed to secure all smart contracts in a cost-effective and scalable manner. Being developed by a team of PhDs with over 500 Google Scholar citations, they're about to finish Y Combinator's Winter 18 batch. To learn more or request an audit, visit www.quantstamp.com. My guest for Unconfirmed today is Chris Berniski, partner at Placeholder and co-author of Crypto Assets. Welcome, Chris. Hi, Laura. Thanks for having me. So what have you been thinking about recently? I have been reflecting on 2017 a lot, and I have been thinking going forward around the optimal ways for us to launch crypto networks and then get those crypto networks to uh, recurring incentive models. And what does that mean exactly? To like something with a block reward or, or other ways to incentivize behaviors on the network? The recurring incentive model idea is it pulls a little bit from a recurring revenue within companies, even though these are networks, not companies. But really, how do we set up a system where you have the supply side of a network, so the side that is offering the utility that the network promises to offer? How do we match that supply side with the demand side, the demand side being the the people who use that utility provided by the network, in such a way, instead of the monetary policy um, that goes with that network, such that over the long term, not just this year, not just next year, not 2020, not 2025, but in 2030, 2040, 2050, that these protocols, these crypto networks can continue to to provision the service that they purport to ultimately provision. And what structures do you think will enable that to happen? Well, that's that's the question. That's what we're here to discuss today. I've been thinking about the... ICO model and whether that is the right place to start. Because I guess let's let's begin this conversation with um, how we launch the network and then how we maybe work towards that recurring incentive model. I think that in 2017 we used a glorified fundraising mechanism to bootstrap our way to a two-sided marketplace um, that matches the the supply side and demand side. But I don't know that we asked ourselves the really hard questions of whether we can buy our way to success. If we look at something like Bitcoin, Bitcoin never had an ICO. Um, Bitcoin never had a jumpstart 
say, to bootstrap that, that two-sided marketplace. Instead, Bitcoin just gives away um, Bitcoin at a fixed cadence in exchange for the secure clearing and settling of Bitcoin transactions. And now Bitcoin's price where it is today, that reward comes out to roughly $15 million a day of newly created Bitcoin. Um, and, you know, when Bitcoin was at 20000 it was more like $30 million a day as that incentive to the supply side. And I think part of our hope with ICOs was, okay, you know, Bitcoin had this really long journey um, to get to that point. Can we accelerate? Can we truncate the first half of that journey and just jump straight to being able to have this very vibrant two-sided marketplace? And I'm not totally convinced that that's going to work out the way we hoped it would in 2017. Yeah, one thing I would say, though, is that with Bitcoin, there was a sort of jumpstart mechanism. It's obviously more muted than what you have with an initial coin offering, but it is obviously the having of the network where the block reward, not of the network, but of the block reward, where obviously when the network first launched, it was doling out 50 Bitcoins every 10 minutes. Then after four years, it went to 25. Now it's 12.5. And so in that regard, it does incentivize early participants, maybe not in the same way that an ICO does, where you can raise tens of millions of dollars in 30 seconds or less. Um, <laughs> but uh, it does still have some mechanism built in, I think, for early adoption. I agree with that. And, and I agree in the sense that it sets up a incentive model, a very clear incentive model, but then it gives away the native asset of the network as opposed to selling it, right? And so that allows actors, rational actors, to decide, okay, is it worth it to me um, to contribute to this network, to provide utility to this network in exchange for that native asset? And so when you know you pull back and you look at an ICO, um, and again, I'm not pointing any fingers here. This is us as a community trying to figure these things out, and we're always experimenting and evolving, and you know that's why I'm in this reflective process. But when I think about an ICO, an ICO, really, it accepts um, a unit of account from elsewhere. It accepts money from elsewhere. And really, that money was earned by the participants in the ICO by them contributing either to some other network or some other industry or whatever it may be. But so they provided utility elsewhere. They got a unit of account elsewhere. And then they used that unit of account to buy their way into a new crypto network. And part of my concern is that the whole point of these native assets is to actually give away the asset in exchange for the supply side coming and providing the utility that the crypto network, again, purports to provide. And so it feels kind of like the ICO is a middleman and potentially an unnecessary middleman. Um, and that leads me to think about, okay, well, what are the really key features um, that we have been looking for in an ICO? And this is through conversations with my partner, Joel Manegra, as well. And we've kind of boiled it down to there's certainly the financial inclusion. And so that's where ICOs run, similar to how ZeroX ran theirs, where you cap the amount um, and you really make sure to widely distribute your asset. I think that financial inclusion is a fantastic aspect of ICOs. And the other aspect is setting a market price. And there are many ways to set a market price. But the reason I say the market price thing is if you actually look at Bitcoin's hash rate, it's really when Bitcoin started to have a market price. Um, because when Bitcoin launched in January 2009, it didn't have a price. 
The first informal exchange rate I don't think came about until October 2009, and it really wasn't until Mt. Gox where there was a widely accessible market price. It's the market price that really started to um, catalyze the hash rate because then the supply side was able to see, okay, this is exactly how much money I'll make at this market price or at a future market price if I contribute right now. And so I think an ICO can be used to set a market price, but you don't have to raise tens or hundreds of millions of dollars in order to set a, uh, a market price. And I think part of my other concern is if you have sold too much of the potential upside and straight out of the gate your network is worth hundreds of millions or billions of dollars, then for new people to come online, whether they be working with the core team or um, just new sort of periphery contributors, in order for them to uh, participate in significant upside, the network's at a billion. It, for it to go 10x, it has to go to 10 billion, which is very different from a network starting at, say, um, 10 million going 10x to 100 million. And um, again, I'm thinking about all of this in the context of catalyzing the utility that um, these crypto networks are intending to provide to the world. Yeah, I agree with a lot of these points here. The one thing that I am curious about, though, is a lot of these teams were using the initial coin offering to fundraise so that way they could build the network. So what would you advocate instead? This is um, a, another point of, of conversation within Placeholder um, is really the best way to fund these teams. We've been pursuing different models. One, especially in the, in the current uh, regulatory environment, the SAFT is, is not necessarily safe anymore. And so we've been looking at equity-style deals, so something where if you know developers are going to hold, say, 10% of future token supply and you value their network at $100 million, then that, that developer stake will be worth $10 million. If you put in $1 million into a equity company, if it's in the U.S. and LLC, then that's $1 million into an equity company that really has a claim on $10 million worth of assets. And so you end up buying 10% of that LLC, um, which is really 1% of the network. And that equity can convert into tokens at a later date. I think, you know, for us, what we're always cognizant of is this movement is in large part about financial inclusion. And so we don't want to be the VCs that capture um, all of the upside to the detriment of the, the, the broader populace. We want to come in and um, really provide a cocoon for teams to build protocols. I mean, this is why we're a, a, a venture firm and, and not a hedge fund. We have this 10-year committed capital fund, 10-year time horizon to allow teams to come in um, and build for a year, two years, three years, four years, whatever they need to then release a protocol to the market where they may never have to do an ICO, right? They could actually come out of the gate and just organically mint and give away 80, 90 plus percent of the network. 
Interesting. I want to ask you more about that, about that time horizon and these other models you're discussing. But first, a quick word from our fabulous sponsor, OnRamp. If you're starting up a new project or need some design or branding help on an existing one, OnRamp has you covered. OnRamp is a full-service creative agency that has helped numerous companies, including many in the crypto space, maximize their brand awareness, gain traction, and accelerate growth. OnRamp has a passion for assisting brands and boosting business results and can help with everything from website and logo design to social and content strategy. Focus on your core technology and leave the rest to OnRamp. To learn more and see how they've helped passionate entrepreneurs achieve their dreams, go to thinkonramp.com. Founded in the aftermath of the DAO hack, QuantStamp is building the first smart contract security auditing protocol designed to secure all smart contracts in a cost-effective and scalable manner. Relying on humans to audit smart contracts is expensive and error-prone. And with the exploding growth of smart contracts, that solution just won't scale. The team at QuantStamp is developing a solution to audit smart contracts on the Ethereum network in an automated and decentralized way that can scale with the growing demand. Being built by a team of PhDs who collectively have over 500 Google Scholar citations, QuantStamp is paving the way for safer and more reliable smart contracts that will power the decentralized world. To learn more, or request an audit, visit www.quantstamp.com. I'm speaking with Chris Berniski of Placeholder Ventures. So when you talked about how you have this 10-year time horizon, how does that work exactly, and why did you put that in place? The 10-year time horizon is really a function of um, our fund structure. So as a venture capital firm, what that means is we raised from investors and pretty much entirely um, institutional investors where within our contract, our limited partner agreement, uh, agreement with our investors, they cannot redeem their assets or request to redeem their assets for 10 years, which is very different from your more liquid hedge fund structures where you can redeem, say, on a three-month uh, three basis or six-month or year, or some have gone up to three years, which actually starts to feel a bit more like a, a venture style. So there, there really is variety in, in how a hedge fund can structure things. But with a venture fund, um, what we do is we don't have all of that fiat, that committed fiat currency um, in our bank accounts. We actually call it over time. And so as we diligence teams, as we make investments, we call that capital and we deploy it. So it's not all sitting in our bank account. And we have a four-year investment period. And we really only look to make about four to six investments a year. Um, so it's a very high conviction form of investing. And the reason we've chosen to do that is we want to save um, the majority of our time to really go to work for the teams and the networks that we choose to support helping them with governance or helping them with crypto economics or legal issues or team building issues or all of the things that these largely seed stage teams are still still facing. So we started this conversation by talking about ICOs. What other methods of token distribution do you think might do a better job? And are you actively steering your the projects you invest in away from ICOs? We are actively steering people away from ICOs at least ICOs as they largely existed in 2017. Um, I think the, regu the regulatory environment alone raises a lot of red flags, and I think that it's pretty clear any asset that is sold pre-network utility is going to be a security. 
And so teams need to be aware of that. That's not something um, anyone can bury their, their head in the sand about. In terms of you know, other models, there's certainly this um, early, small private funding model, sort of akin to what Zcash did. You know, Zcash was, was really quite forward-thinking in, in, in how they did things. But then there, you know, if you don't need to fund, you may not need to raise from anyone. And you can launch similar to how Bitcoin launched or Monero or any of those guys. Um, you could do something like an airdrop to initiate, sort of like what Decred did, airdrop to initiate a broader base and then organically mine from there. I think we're going to see a lot of experimentation. The key, sort of the kernel that all of this comes down to for me, is that the majority of the tokens need to go into the hands of people that earn the token, whether it be a human or a machine, that earn that token by contributing work to the network. Because in contributing that work to the network, they actually grow the utility of the network. And that is what will then bring the demand side on um, because they're enticed either by that service being cheaper than something that they could find in the existing centralized world or truly differentiated from anything that they can that they can find. But it really, you have to get the supply side to work by giving away your token to even create that service in the first place, which will then create this two-sided marketplace. And earlier you mentioned Zcash, an example. What about that model do you like? I, well, there's a number of things I like about it. I believe they raised about a million dollars for Zcash Co. And they use that for the development, right, to fund protocol work. And then as, um, when they launched, that was October of 2016, I think it was. Um, when they launched now the first four years, they take, I believe it's 20% of the block reward. Um, and that actually goes for the first four years that goes to the balance sheet of Zcash Co. And then there's an arrangement with the investors. Placeholder wasn't around then, so we didn't participate in that deal. But I just think it's it's it, it was very clean because developers need to put food on the table and they may not want to put their own capital at risk, right? But they can go and raise a small amount of capital and emphasis on, you know, raise what you need. It, uh, more money can mean more problems, right? Um, but raising what you <laughs> raising what you, what you need to build the protocol and then actually launching from there and repaying your investors through whatever mechanisms we come up with in the future uh, with Zcash uh, uh, providing one model. Yeah, I feel like you're not the only people I've been hearing talking about how earning might be the way to go. Like a lot of I recently did a podcast on my longer podcast, Unchained, with Olaf and Ryan of Polychain, and they were talking about how they really liked how Filecoin reserved a lot of tokens for the block reward so people could earn as they go, mm-hmm. which is very similar to what you're describing. One other thing I just wanted to circle back to is you mentioned regulation. And before the show, you had mentioned how you have been thinking about something called or what you called scalable regulation. What does that mean? Uh. So scalable regu- regulation, you know, we focus in the space a lot on scaling the technology, but the regulation will need to scale just as much in that this is a global phenomenon made of software that moves extremely fast. And so the regulatory methods that we have used in the past, which were designed for the assets at that time and the systems at that time, I don't think they can scale to meet the demands of this system. And so when I'm thinking about scalable regulation, I'm thinking about TPL, the transaction processing layer from that Zeppelin recently put out, 
or Masari, what Ryan Selkis is working on, um, ways in which we can actually create um, self-regulated systems or protocols within our community. Harbor um, is working on their, their R token as well that employ some of our learnings and some of the utility of this technology actually to help regulate the technology. And certainly the governmental bodies will still be there. The, the governments are not going away um, anytime soon, and so they will still be involved. But maybe they can actually participate through the regulatory protocols. Or this is where also governance comes in, where maybe the regulators will have to buy different crypto assets to exert governance forces on those protocols um, if they want a seat at the table. And so that's really what I mean around um, scalable regulation and in, uh, injecting that thought process into regulation just as we inject it into discussions around the technology. Wow, that might be one of the most interesting ideas I've ever heard, regulators buying the tokens to exert some governance. Um, I, I do find it really fascinating. And I, I wonder what what some of the regulators might say about that. Um, one last thing I wanted to ask you before we go is you had brought up the financial inclusion piece and everybody's always talking about the democratizing aspect of blockchains. And yet, as we've seen, there are a lot of whales that dominate. And even earlier when you mentioned airdrops, of course, what came to my mind is that, of course, then the people who have a lot of tokens get more. So what are your ideas for enabling more kind of inclusiveness in the delivery of these tokens? I think a lot of it is going to come down to the monetary policies that we choose, monetary and fiscal policies, um, to borrow old old world terms and apply them to, to crypto networks. But you know, what is the inflation policy, and what is how are uh, how are users taxed in these networks? A transaction fee is really a tax of some port, uh, some sort. So. You know, I, I'm, I, I can hear some of the libertarians screaming already as I'm speaking, um, but it's... I think they're um, always screaming. <laughs> but it's, it's, if we look at some of the traditional ways that inflation or taxation can be used, certainly it has, they, they have been misused. But if you think about an asset that has a 100% fixed supply, that means that as someone accumulates... 10 units, let's say there's 100 units fixed supply. If someone accumulates 10 units and just holds on to it, there's no way to ever redistribute the wealth. And so this is where actually inflation, it, there's a double-edged sword to this, but inflation in some ways can be used as a redistribution mechanism um, to continue to put new supply into the market for new participants to to appreciate in, so long as they're participating in the first first place and you know not getting eroded by inflation elsewhere. Then on, on taxation, there's also, you know, um, we're, we're really at the earliest stages of thinking about what a transaction fee is or how it can be levied or what is, um, what do we charge fees for? Um, and if we're going to be uh, spending a lot of our time within these crypto networks um, working for them or consuming services from them, I think we'll see a lot more granularity in terms of how fees are levied, it may, it may just be that a fee is baked into inflation to hide the fee, um, but still support the network. Um, but all of these things, I think, are, are things that we need to take more seriously because we pound our chest on the egalitarian nature of these networks. But right now, I would agree that they are largely more unequal um, than, than a lot of existing systems.
Yeah, this is interesting because I heard some people talking on this other podcast about how with fees, then there is a little bit of a psychological barrier there. And so maybe inflation actually is a better way to go. But I guess we'll see how these all play out. Well, it's been so great having you on the show. Thanks for having me, Laura. Thanks for coming on Unconfirmed. Thanks so much for joining us today. To learn more about the topics we discussed, be sure to check out the links in the show notes of your podcast episode. New episodes of Unconfirmed come out every Friday. If you haven't already, rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. If you like this episode, share it with your friends on Facebook, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Unconfirmed is produced by me, Laura Shin, with help from Elaine Selby, Fractal Recording, Jenny Josephson, and Daniel Ness. Thanks for listening.